Los Angeles is a city of cars. Twelve separate highways crisscross the city with millions of miles of car travel taking place on them every day. The I-405 highway is the busiest interstate in the US. The section that passes through LA has an average of 379,000 vehicles driving on it every day. All those cars mean massive congestion issues. The average Angelino driver spends 82 hours a year sitting in traffic, which is estimated to cost $30 billion in lost time and wasted fuel. To deal with the traffic problems on the I-405, in 2010, LA decided to widen the highway and add more lanes. Five years and $1.6 billion later, the 72-mile stretch of highway has been expanded, but rush hour traffic actually got worse. The bigger highway just encouraged even more people to drive. But now efforts are being made to encourage people out of their cars and into public transport. Huge investments are being made to make sure LA meets its target of reaching net zero by 2050. And part of that plan means that by 2050, half of all journeys will be taken outside of a car. To achieve that goal, LA's bus system is being totally revamped. In 2017, LA Metro announced that by 2030, they would convert the entirety of the city's bus fleet to electric. That means more than 2,000 new electric buses, dozens of new routes, 10 new depots, and hopefully thousands of new riders. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with WSP to talk about the challenges and opportunities that come with electrifying a bus fleet in a city the size of Los Angeles. Dozens of countries spanning nearly every continent in the world have some form of electric buses in their fleet. But outside of Shenzhen in China, no major city has attempted to electrify their entire bus fleet. And LA's climate and geography provide some additional challenges for the project. Not only do we have a very big geography in which our client serves, it's a, it's a huge agency and a huge uh, service area. Los Angeles County comprises you know, a desert climate, you know, in, in uh, the extreme uh, northern part of the climate as well as a coastal climate where buses are challenged by uh, lot, uh, lots of different temperature changes, lots of different topography changes, and, and lots of different service extremes. They have a, a variety of route types that, that need to be accounted for in, in the technology. And then of course, the legendary traffic in LA, you know, buses will often sit in traffic and all of that needs to be accounted for in the performance modeling. Cliff Henke is WSP's global chair of the Zero Emissions Buses and Bus Rapid Transit Network and is the program manager for LA's bus electrification project. According to the California Household Travel Survey, only 3% of the LA county population use public transit regularly, whereas 77% say they never use it at all. And LA's driving culture is a big contributor to the city's poor air quality. 80% of California's smog pollutants and 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. So the American Lung Association, which is a public health focus group, does an annual study called the State of the Air Report. And the LA region 
which includes the part where I live in, in Long Beach, it has uh, the dirtiest air in the nation uh, as it relates to smog. And we're up there within the top 10, uh, I think really actually within the top five for particulate matter pollution. So in other words, our air is so dirty, it's illegal. And those standards are based off of public health requirements, public health studies, public health science. Uh, and LA in particular has consistently failed to meet uh, those standards throughout the decades. Chris Chavez is the Deputy Policy Director for the Coalition for Clean Air in California. And LA's terrible air quality is a direct cause of many serious health issues. Certainly, uh, folks who live in this area are at a much higher risk for asthma, cardiovascular diseases, pulmonary diseases, because of their exposure to dirty air. Additionally, for those folks who are living closest to the freeways, uh, closest to the highways, they are also at higher risk for cancer. If you look at the, the South Coast Air Quality Management District, which is our local air district, they do regional air quality regulations and enforcement. They've done a study called the Multiple Air Toxics Exposure Study, or MATES. And what that looks at is the relative cancer risk over their entire jurisdiction. And people who live closer to freeways, people who live closer to industrial sources, uh, have a, a much higher, significantly higher cancer risk uh, just because of their proximity to pollution sources, uh, particularly diesel particulate matter is really the, the main concern uh, when it comes to air toxic cancer risk. An electric bus fleet will provide major benefits to local residents, particularly those living in underserved communities. Those communities are have long experienced uh, environmental racism, and we need to make sure we're incorporating and, and listening to those voices uh, in those communities. Oftentimes, what we call a disadvantaged community today was a formerly redlined community. And for those of you who don't know what redlining was, it was a discriminatory housing practice uh, in the starting in the 1930s and 40s, in which uh, communities were basically written off uh, and, and really segregated, racially segregated. So uh, you would have uh, this separation between uh, white families, white communities, and uh, black, Latino, Asian uh, communities. We're still dealing with that, the legacy of that, the effects of that nearly a century later. Changing an entire bus fleet to electric also requires changing the entire layout of the bus routes. The typical requirement for a diesel-propelled uh, bus or a compressed natural gas uh, propulsion bus is upwards of 400 miles on a tank of fuel, if you will. And the service is planned around that, that uh, ability to, to go that far. But the currently available battery-powered buses cannot reach that range. There's been a lot of claims by manufacturers, uh, and, and they usually are in controlled conditions. That's why they can make these claims of ranges upward of you know 400 miles even. In practice, a 40-foot bus fully laden in active service in the current conditions of, say, California or the Western United States, or even the Northern tier, is no more than, at most, about 150 miles. To understand what routes electric buses will be capable of, 
extensive data collection on the current buses and routes was undertaken. That data can then be used to model the performance of potential new routes through a tool developed by WSP. This analytical tool has been used to optimise transit electrification projects in many cities across the world, such as Auckland in New Zealand. Although electric bus technology will continue to improve, to achieve the 2030 deadline, new routes had to be modelled based on the existing technology. But ways of extending the range of current battery technology are also being looked at. And what we're also involved in with uh, in, in the planning and, and uh, development of the program is to uh, identify places in their service network where they can charge the buses uh, at a schedule layover, for example. Um, it built in any public transport operation is, uh, is a service recovery and a layover for drivers to, um, you know, take a break or, or, or have lunch or to change the, you know, shift changes. Uh, and so those layover opportunities present a, a point at which the operation can those buses can can recharge. It's called opportunity charging, and and so we're identifying several opportunity charge locations throughout the county. We've identified fifty two currently, but we think that that will be further optimized as the uh, vehicle ranges improve with technology improvements. Another option being looked at is removable batteries, allowing for freshly charged batteries to be swapped in. And although battery-powered buses have been chosen, trials are being prepared to look at the efficacy of hydrogen fuel cell buses. Discussions are underway to explore the idea and the feasibility of doing a pilot involving hydrogen fuel cell technology, which of course then you know eliminates the range problem. That this is not to say that fuel cells are a panacea. They too, they too have uh, technological challenges, but range is not one of them. The other major part of the project is retrofitting all 10 of the city's bus depots to be capable of charging the buses. Each depot will be retrofitted in stages. First design, then construction, and then connecting it to the electrical grid, a process which could take five years for each depot. The retrofitting will be staggered to ensure that the current bus network experiences minimal disruption. But even when complete, the biggest challenges will be connecting the depots to the electrical grid. Each depot will require a huge amount of power from the grid, more power than local grid infrastructure can currently handle. Unoptimized peak power requirement could be as high as 20 megawatts of power. And that, of course, is several times what would be needed to serve a, a medical center or a rail line or a skyscraper, for example. You know, there may be only five or so megawatts of service available in that local grid to serve that, that facility. So they will need to upgrade with substations and additional electrical infrastructure. And California's electrical grid is already near breaking point. After a record-breaking heatwave in the summer of 2022, there were major concerns over the possibility of vast rolling blackouts across the state. California Governor Gavin Newsom said the heatwave went right up to the edge of breaking our grid. California just went through uh, a significant heatwave uh, earlier this month that put our electrical system under tremendous strain. 
So it's also making sure that our electrical system is able to uh, withstand and, and supply the demand that's needed for electric vehicles. This is Coalition for Clean Air in California's Chris Chavez again. When those buses are charging overnight, when it's cheaper, there's still some concern about outstripping baseload capacity at night. So really trying to figure out how to adjust our energy production and energy storage so that we're matching it with what the, the needs are. Um, those are all things that are you know, currently being worked on, currently being addressed. Uh, environmental organizations have been part of the process and we're continuing to push for environmental organizations to be part of that process, as well as for environmental justice organizations and advocates for environmental justice. So the project is working closely with the main electrical companies to ensure that the demand can be met. But they're also looking at ways to reduce the peak power demand of the depots. This is through charge management modeling. Charge management software would basically uh, detect through telematics how, how much the state of charge is when the, when the bus returns back to the depot. And, and then prioritize when that bus needs to go back into service using the schedule or you know, it could even be a uh, a change in service uh, for the following day or whatever it might be, that charge management software and equipment would be able to charge those buses in a sequence that ma makes it much more it makes it much more manageable from a peak. And the entire the idea is to lower cost for the uh, for the agency, but also lower uh, the capital cost of the equipment need. Another option being looked at to reduce the demand on the grid is installing solar panels in all of the depots. While solar, for example, would only probably uh, provide about 2.4 megawatts of power you know, for a solar installation of the size of depot that we're talking about, it could be used to help shave the peaks. And it's all about the peak requirement in order to deliver the connected load necessary. And so a variety of ch charge management software and hardware plus the, uh, plus the, the uh, microgrid strategy could lower that peak connected load requirement from the utilities to say five or eight megawatts, so much more manageable figure and much less capital intensive, of course. And having new depots fitted for electric bus charging will bring benefits to local residents. The buses themselves will be much quieter, adding less noise pollution to the local community. And as well as less pollution being emitted, the new depots will help improve the local grid infrastructure. It could very well improve the delivery of electrical service to a, to a neighbourhood, absolutely. And we've looked at that, those kinds of improvements that could be undertaken. I know at one of the... Um, divisions of some of the work that we're doing not in LA but elsewhere they're even looking because of the technology of battery electric buses can involve less emissions and a lot of involve additional electrical upgrades they're looking at building over the depot and putting affordable housing on top of the depot the order of which bus routes will change first and which depots get retrofitted first has been set out in a master plan. 
all, all of that was comprised in a master plan and in a rollout plan filing for the regulatory agency in the state. Now our work is optimizing that plan. So we may change the, the sequencing of the program based on advances in technology, some of the changes that they've made in, in service. And the rollout process is already underway. In late 2021, the G Line, or Orange Line, started running exclusively with electric buses. The G Line was chosen to transition first as it didn't require any route changes, and the line already runs on a dedicated busway. It actually didn't require any changes to the route. That was, you know, part of the goal. It, what we wanted to do was, was help the agency transition their their most high profile services first. So that involves the Metro Orange Line bus rapid transit line, which is on a dedicated roadway, uh, an abandoned uh, rail facility from several years ago that, that was leased by the county, uh, actually purchased by the county. So they, they were able to um, convert that to a busway. And, and that Orange Line uh, service involves both some depot charging but in the main it involves it, it involves opportunity charging it's, and that was the and that was the approach that was undertaken even with the rollout already underway major obstacles still remain to complete this project by its very ambitious deadlines you know part of the challenge in LA of delivering this program is going to be delivering a big part of this program in time to serve the Olympic Games in 2028. You know, the program, we projected that the, about 60% of the program should be transitioned by the time of the LA 28 Games. While challenges remain in regards to building the infrastructure and connecting all of the utilities, Cliff believes the biggest obstacle to completing the project is funding. The vehicle price, as well as the infrastructure cost, have not come down as as rapidly as initially assumed and as a result there's a huge funding gap the average bus price just to give you an example remains about for a battery electric bus compared with a compressed natural gas uh, bus that was the uh, that is in the legacy fleet the price differential is still between 20 and 30 percent and will be for the foreseeable future well that has to be met with additional funding. I called it public transport's um, space program. It's their moonshot. I mean, every single agency that undertakes this uh, with so many challenges that they face, it's the equivalent of, of a mission to the moon. The LA bus electrification project may be unique in terms of the scale and speed in which it's been undertaken but many cities around the world are looking at ways to decarbonize their bus systems. And Cliff believes huge benefits can be gained by projects sharing information and learning from each other. Part of what uh, we have done in our transition program was, uh, was actually um, part of our team hosted a European fact-finding trip in uh, Amsterdam, for example, outside Schiphol Airport. The technology being used by Metro for saving space involves overhead pantograph systems. And it's probably one of the larger overhead pantograph charging approaches um, in, in Europe. 
in existence today and and uh and they were able to look at you know what kind of um requirements were needed from a infrastructure standpoint from a structural integrity standpoint um, what kind of ground supports were needed to undertake and so there were a lot of lessons gained just looking at the the, the installation in amsterdam some interesting uh, lessons were gained in germany the german installation also offers the uh, ability of, of of the public to charge at their locations it's a limited application but that was an interesting thing that the, that the team saw there and then and then finally in london uh, London, I believe, is using both uh, a battery electric and a fuel cell strategy, a combined strategy, and to and to gain some lessons learned there were, were interesting. And 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 so it, you know, the more the more that that is undertaken, the more that knowledge can be shared, um, is is a good thing. But there still remains an issue for LA as a city to overcome. Can improving the available public transport change the people's perceptions and get people out of their cars? You know, LA Metro, you know, the local transit agencies are really trying to address some of those, but they're very difficult built-in issues to address. And it's always going to be very difficult to overcome those. Uh, you know, I will say that there's probably a classist issue as well. You know, transportation being viewed, public transportation being viewed as a lower income thing. The lack of connection, connectivity is certainly a concern as well, certainly a problem. You know, when it takes you three or four buses or, you know, a train and a bus and another bus to go somewhere, that's always going to turn off people because they want a direct connection. Uh, so there are a lot of systemic problems. There are a lot of problems that were built with how the system was designed, problems with how the system was designed. But there are also a lot of cultural, soft cultural issues like perceptions of safety, perceptions of uh, of uh, the clientele, the the, pe- the people the, that the train serves, the transit serves, uh, that need to be overcome as well. But there had been positive signs. Public transport ridership had been rising steadily for years in LA before the pandemic. And investment in ambitious projects like the bus electrification project which make LA's public transit cleaner, safer, and more reliable, are helping to change public perception. There is a bit of a culture shift happening where transit and public transportation is being viewed a little bit differently, viewed a little bit more positively. It's going to take a lot of work, it's going to take a lot of time, but I do see some of that shifting. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Johnny Dowling, hosted by me, Alex Conacher, co-hosted by Rian Owen, editing and series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our own Rush Hour Jam is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP, and thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.